Wow, I don't know about you, but some mornings I just want the worship to continue on. I'll just stay seated and just keep going, right? Thank you so much, worship team, for serving this morning. We appreciate you guys. We're in Romans chapter 7, and you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. But when we get, when we get far enough into a series, I know that several people have come after the series began. So you weren't around when we like kicked it off. You weren't around when we explained what the book of Romans is about. So let me just take a moment here as we get into God's Word to explain Uh, what the book of Romans is and why we're studying it. The series is called Nail It Down, and that's because Romans is all about the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Also, the book of Romans, uh, 501 years ago, like lit the fires of the Reformation that swept through the world and and reclaimed the church for Christ. And so that's also a a look back to when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door and basically uh, brought back the foundations of the faith. And the book of Romans lit that fire in his heart. So it's called Nail It Down. And one commentator said this about the book of Romans. Paul wrote Romans in the winter of A.D. 56 to 57. He was staying in Corinth, the chief seaport of ancient Greece, at the home of his friend and convert Gaius. Paul had been an itinerant preacher for nearly 20 years. He'd seen the gospel of God's salvation through Jesus Christ change the lives of Jews and Gentiles he'd witnessed to. Now he was writing down in letter form an account of this gospel, which he knew to be so dynamic and effective in bringing people to salvation. Romans is a full statement of Paul's missionary message. Unlike Paul's other letters, his one to the Romans is the only one to a church he hadn't started or visited. So that's a great summary of how he wrote it and where he wrote it. Who did he write it to? He wrote it to an uncommon community of people living in Rome, the capital of the empire. Check out this picture, one artist's rendition of of the magnificent city. So just imagine for a moment that that's your home. That's your hometown. And if you want to like uh, put yourself in the Bible, imagine that like most of you have a Jewish background and you were raised on the Old Testament and somehow you found yourself living in Rome for business or whatever, however you got there. And then, and then many of you, you know, but probably not most, are Gentiles. And you're Greeks, you're Romans, and you found your way into this little church with, uh, with, with the other Jewish folk. And here we are gathering today for church in, wow, what a grand city, in, wow, what a grand empire. But somewhere in there, the church is getting together. And then I announced to you, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And it's a long one, so sit down, because we're going to be here for a while. That's how the book of Romans was written. It was a letter to a church, and believers, a mixed group, were meeting in this amazing city. Rome <clears throat> was filled with pomp and power and lust and luxury. But listen, nothing in Rome was as glorious as the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the gospel of Jesus Christ arrived, all of Rome's other glory was eclipsed. Christ brought more power and prestige to Rome through these small band of outcast Christians than any emperor ever could. But this glory was hidden. Christ hid his glory in what he calls jars of clay, ordinary people going about their day as carpenters, fishermen, silversmiths, goldsmiths, merchants, tanners, doctors, innkeepers, weavers, household servants, messengers, soldiers, jail, jailers, tent makers. That's us. Christ hid his amazing glory in the hearts of his people. This small group of believers meeting in homes around the city re- received this letter. Now, what are the main themes of the letter? Uh, I'll just throw them all up on the screen, but here's the main themes that we're looking at. Sin, what is right and what is wrong? First few chapters covered that. Salvation, how can my sin problem be solved? The first few chapters covered that. Now we're pivoting, we're getting into the part of the book that deals with sanctification. How can my behavior change? Sovereignty then comes next, 
How did God's plan unfold? And then finally, service. How can I serve a holy God? So this, this is basically the flow of the book. So that is an overview, and that is where we're going in God's Word. So today, we are in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, and let me pray before we hear from the Lord in His Word. Father, we open our hearts to this wonderful book that you have handed down, and we know that the Bible is God-breathed. Uh, every word in this book is breathed out from your lips to us. So help us, Lord, to respond to this word with the gravity of of its authority, and we pray that we would not just pick and choose what we believe or what we hear or how we respond, but we would realize that this book bears the divine authority. Help us, Lord, to learn of your love and your law, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we are in chapter 7, and Paul's continuing a thought here. This is like part 4 of his thought here, so you got to go back and hear the other sermons um, if you want to catch up, but he says this in chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." Now, the title of the sermon today is Released from the Law. It deals with the saints' relationship, Christians' relationship to God's law. And then it tells us what Christ did to help us with that. The first thing you can jot down is this. Number one is, I am under the authority of God's law. And I'm kind of preaching this text backwards. Like, we're, we're starting in the later verses, 5 and 6, and then working our way back to verse 1 because it makes more sense. But the issue is this, I am under the authority of God's law. It says in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So you have sinful passions inside of us, aroused by God's law outside of us. You put those two things together and there's this like death fruit, poison fruit. We focused on the imagery of fruit a lot more last week, so we're not going to dig into that anymore. But remember last week I showed that poison garden video of every plant in the garden being poisonous? That's what happens when our flesh is aroused to sin. The interesting comment here, though, is how God's moral law, God's moral law uh, actually doesn't make the problem better. Finding out about what he has for us doesn't actually fix the problem. So we are under the authority of God's law. Now, it goes on. In verse 6 to say, but we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So the law held us captive. And God wants us to serve in the new way, but our starting point is this. We are under the authority of God's law, and we are held captive. When someone says, the law, we use that phrase a lot, right? The law. How's that song go? I fought the law and... Come on, say it. And... Right? We know what it means when we say the law. He's in trouble with... The law, right? We mean like the authorities, people who have the power to take us to court or throw us in jail. The law. 
Well, when the Bible uses the phrase the law, typically it means the Mosaic law, which means part of the Old Testament. Now, the, the law can also refer to all of the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. In addition, sometimes in the New Testament, when it says the law, it just means the whole Old Testament, the law. I mean, that was then, right? The law. Here in this context, um, it narrowly specifically means part of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, right? So here's a picture of Mount Sinai, and uh, God gave Moses the law. He handed down the Ten Commandments. God wrote it with his own finger on stone. And listen, let me just comment. In this day where we're told we can believe anything we want, and if it's right for you, then it's right for you. And listen, God wrote with his finger on stone. This is wrong. This is right. And he handed it to Moses on a mountain that was on fire. And God said, if anyone touches this mountain, they'll die. Now go back down and tell them right and wrong. Okay, so we can't just scribble nonsense all over the morality of this world and say, well, I just get to make up right and wrong. Look to Sinai. There's Charlton Heston playing the role of Moses, right? I, I don't think that's what the Ten Commandments looked like. There was actually a lot more written on those tablets. Uh, but, hey, it's a movie. Uh, and so what we, what we remember is this, like, dramatic giving of the law, right? The law. And Paul says here in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law, which means there's a lot of people in this church in Rome who were Israelites, and they grew up on Moses, the Ten Commandments, their favorite movie was the Ten Commandments. You know, they watched it all the time. In Sunday school, like, they heard Old Testament stories. There was no Jesus. So you can understand their dilemma when Jesus shows up and, and people start talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses, okay? Now, we are under the authority of God's law. When I say that the Jewish folk were thinking about the law of Moses, they were nationally under the law of Moses in a special way. So God elected the nation of Israel, put them under this special law, made a covenant with them, and then there were blessings attached to keeping it and warnings attached to breaking it. Okay, now, you and I don't have that exact relationship to God's law. But the principle still stands. We are all under God's law. So this isn't just talking to Jewish people. This is talking to all of us, but in different ways. Jot this down. Therefore, I am legally guilty in God's court. I'm legally guilty in God's court. God's law is binding on me, and his morality is over me. And therefore, it says here that I must be released from the law somehow. It says I was held captive to the law. Uh, it, it says here that the law aroused my sinful passions. So, so that's my relationship to God's morality. I, I broke his law. I'm bound. I'm guilty. And I need to be released or set free. So I am legally guilty in God's court. We learned here that God's word identifies sin. It tells us what sin is. We can't figure that out all by ourselves. It also produces guilt and shame. When we realize that God has a moral opinion and we've broken his law, we feel guilt. We feel shame. And it also produces fear of judgment. Guilt, shame, and fear. It therefore points to our need for justification, which the word justification means to be made right in God's sight legally. Somehow we need to be made right in God's sight. This courtroom imagery is meant to describe your relationship to God. 
So here's a picture of a gavel. And, and imagine that there you are on Judgment Day, and finally the judge, God, you know, drops the gavel and pounds it and, and declares you guilty, and that's that. There's nothing you can do to undo it. Uh, there are many other images that describe our relationship to God, right, like Father, but we can't dismiss the courtroom imagery. God is not just a genie up in heaven who wants to grant you your every wish. God is the chief justice of heaven. And therefore, we have to somehow get out of our legal problems before we appear before him. I am legally guilty in God's court. Jot this down. The law reveals my guilt and makes me worse. The law reveals my guilt and makes me worse. It says in verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. What on earth does that mean? It means this. It means when I hear about God's law and I learn about right and wrong, somehow I end up wanting to do the wrong more. If you're a parent, you can agree that sometimes when you tell your young child, don't do this, they start twitching. Because what happens in their little heart, their little precious heart, what happens? They want to do it more, don't they? Don't eat candy before lunch. And then they start like shaking, like, like a power is possessing them, drawing them to the candy drawer, right? But they can't stop wanting it. And telling them right and wrong doesn't always make it better, right? Just tell your child, don't say that word. Then what happens? It's like, it's like their mouth starts vibrating and they're like chewing on their tongue to not say it, right? Then they go to school the next day and they're like, guess what word I can't say? <laughs> See, this is how it works. When we learn God's law, when we learn right and wrong, suddenly we're like, not better. We're kind of worse because now we're trying to justify our way out of doing what we want to do. And so the law reveals my guilt and somehow makes me worse. So the law reveals sin. The law does restrain sin. It's, it's true in the Old Testament and in the New that when people find out about God's law and then they hear about his awful judgments, it does keep us in check. Like it, when you read the story of Noah, right? You're like, wow, I really shouldn't upset God. So it does restrain us to a degree. But at the same time, the Bible is clear, it also releases sin to overpower us at a deeper level. See, so the war gets worse internally, and we try and find ways to justify our sin. So we learn that we have a lot in common. We're, we're, not, if we're, not, you know, we're not Jewish under the Old Testament covenant, but we have a lot in common exactly with this group. We too are under God's moral law. We too gain awareness of sin through this law. And knowing right and wrong doesn't fix the problem. It worsens the problem. There's a difference between breaking God's law when you don't know it and breaking it when you do. And guess which is worse? When we sin knowingly. So God's law makes the problem worse. And then we end up resenting God when he's the one who forbids us from the things that we want. So the Bible says here that we are captive to the law. We, we must be released from the law having died to that which held us captive. We are captive. The truth is this. We cannot keep the law and the law cannot rescue us from God's wrath. Here's a picture of somebody who's being held captive. 
an inmate. And this is the way the Bible describes you. God's word, God's law has shackled us up. We're in big trouble and we must be set free somehow. We have to agree with our starting point with God. Otherwise, we won't embrace his solution to the problem. And, and listen, if you feel like your whole life, oh, I'm good with God. I've always been good with God. Big guy and me are in great shape. The Bible says otherwise. And you can't just barge into heaven with your opinions of how things should be. You have to understand what the Bible says things are. Jot this down. Many are ignorant, but not innocent. Many are ignorant, but not innocent. So it says here, I'm speaking to those who know the law. But there are other verses in the book of Romans that make it clear that if if you sin apart from the law, you will die apart from the law, which means you're still guilty. So if people, maybe you were raised outside the church and you're like, nobody ever told me this stuff. That doesn't mean you're innocent. It means you're ignorant. And God does treat people who who just don't know his law differently. Uh, He does treat them differently. And there are other verses that describe God's common grace for the world. He gives them rain. He blesses them. You know, fills their life with all sorts of joy. He doesn't bring punishment on them as quickly or severely as he did on his people Israel because they sinned knowingly. Okay, it, was, it could be like instant death if you were in the community of Israel and you sinned. That's not the way it works in the world. So understand that the law changes how God enacts his judgment, but it doesn't change the fact that we're under it. Everyone is under it. Maybe you grew up in the church, and frankly, you know better. You know better than some of the sinful choices you've made. You were raised better than that. But many people don't have that blessing. So number one, I'm under the authority of God's law. I'm legally guilty in God's court. The law reveals my guilt and makes me worse. And many are ignorant, but not innocent. Number two, jot this down. Jesus must release me from the penalty of God's law. So it says here, In verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So how does that happen? Well, look back up to verse 1. See, I'm preaching it in reverse, just to confuse you. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So he's taking a general principle, and then he's going to tie it to spiritual principles. The general principle is this. If the police show up, to your house with a warrant for your arrest. And they barge in, and there you are, dead on the floor. Okay, they're not going to read you your rights. They're not going to cuff you. You're dead. So death uh, breaks the power and the authority of the law over you. Everybody knows that, right? If I'm dead, the coppers can't get me anymore. So he's using that to point to a deeper spiritual truth. He says, For if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So that's true. You make a promise. It's a legally binding promise. And this isn't a sermon on marriage and divorce, but the bottom line is when you stand before God and you say, I do, not only should an earthly court hold you to that promise, but God holds you to that promise. And so when it comes to marriage and divorce, God wants you to stay married. And there are only very few biblical reasons where a person would be allowed to get a divorce. If there's a case of physical adultery, uh, right, then that, then that allows for a divorce because the bond has been severed. If the spouse dies or if a, if a spouse does not believe in the Lord Jesus and they leave you, then you're free to remarry. Those, the Bible very strictly limits why we can get divorces. Um, and so 
But that's not the point of this text. The point is, here's the law. But then it says in verse uh, 2 that if he dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So, you know, if this woman's a widow and then she finds another man and marries, nobody's going to be like, you adulterer, how could you cheat on your husband? Like death, she fulfilled her promise, right? Till death do us part. The law is therefore broken. So the point is this, if her husband was alive and she went with that other man, she'd be sinful, right? But since he died, that penalty is gone and that, and that law is gone. So she can move on. The same is true spiritually. It says in verse 3, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now take that imagery and understand verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Jesus must release me from the penalty of God's law. The truth is this, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death becomes your death. He died on the cross in your place as a substitute. So when the coppers come to get you, to take you to judgment for your crimes, guess what? You died. The law has been broken and no longer has authority over you because you died with Christ. That's the image here. So Jesus must release me from the penalty of the law. Now, Jewish folks were tempted and pressured to stay in the Old Testament, to reach God by keeping the Ten Commandments, the food laws, the temple laws. But listen, this was never the plan. In the Old Testament, Moses pointed to the plan. But here in the New, the believers in Rome were tempted to mix the two together. Well, I'll take a little Jesus and a little Moses. I'll take a little of the two. It's the old country buffet method of getting to heaven. I'll just take a little from here and a little from there and a little from here and a little from there, right? What's wrong with a little Jesus and a little Moses? So Paul's writing to correct that understanding. Uh, they struggle to understand and embrace the true supremacy of Christ. Jot this down. Jesus lived a perfect life. Why must Jesus be the one to free me from the law? Because only Jesus can keep the law perfectly. Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind, and only Jesus kept the law. Um, I told you before that I play chess. Did I tell you that? Because I'm kind of nerdy. And don't laugh. Don't laugh at your pastor at, on church, at church on Sunday. But on, on, when I'm playing chess, I can play with people from all around the world. And so I recently was playing with somebody from Saudi Arabia. And I struck up a conversation, and I said, hey, do you know about Jesus? And he started, he started writing back, and he said, my friend, I know more about your religion than you know. <laughs> For God taught us in the Quran about all the prophets and messengers. He also told us that you say Jesus is the Son of God, and that is not true. This is while we're playing chess. Okay, so I'm like making my move and typing back. Chess apologetics is one of the hardest things you can ever do. <laughs> I lost the game, all right, because I didn't want to hurt his feelings while I was sharing the gospel with him. So I wrote back, okay, I said, but 600 years after Jesus, 600 miles away, the clear teaching of the Bible was changed. What makes the Koran an authorized book? See, always ask questions. I didn't tell him, I asked him, right? On what basis, 600 years later, 600 miles away, did you change the book? And then he goes on to say, 
you know, uh, that Muhammad and, and the Quran ordered people to worship God alone. See, they don't believe Jesus is God. They think he's one of the prophets, which is why he called him a messenger, right? And so we went on and we, we talked more and more, and he said, you know, that we don't believe in the Trinity and we don't believe in the divinity of Jesus, the son of Mary. He said, all the prophets and messengers before Jesus said they worship only God. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Solomon, and Jesus was his message to people worshiping God alone. So he's calling Jesus just the prophet, nothing more. And I said, but wasn't Jesus special even in the Quran? If he was virgin born and he was able to command nature, isn't he more than a prophet? What did Jesus mean when he said, before Abraham was born, I am? When he said that, the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. His response, how old are you and what is your Christian doctrine? I am over 40 years old. <laughs> so am I, buddy. <laughs> I am 41 years old. I'm also a pastor in a church, so I studied the Bible and have researched other religions. Then I shared my testimony with them, right? And I ended with a question. How does a Muslim gain God's approval? So we, we keep going, and it's still, it's still going. Like, we're, we're still, he might message me this morning, and then we can all decide on how to respond together. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but that conversation reflects what many people think. Jesus is just one of many messengers, prophets, gurus, special people. There's nothing unique about him. And the Bible says otherwise. Jesus lived a perfect life. Hey, maybe your opinion is that Jesus was a great person, a religious person, a kinder, special person, but the Bible says Jesus was one of a kind. The Bible says that only Jesus can rescue you. In 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, it says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus lived a perfect life. That makes him one of a kind. So Jesus must release me from the penalty of God's law. He lived a perfect life. Jot this down. Jesus died in your place. Jesus died in your place. So how can we die with him? Well, on the cross, when he died, we too died if our faith is in him. We were united with him in faith. Let me, let me use another way to explain what happened at the cross. Imagine if God handed you a homework assignment. Your assignment was this, become 100% holy, go. And you take this homework assignment and you look at the paper and you realize page after page after page of things that you have to do to become perfectly holy and it feels like you're taking a calculus test that's written in Chinese. You're like, I really can't do this. This is too hard of a test. This is impossible. I, I might as well be coloring with a crayon. Right? I, I feel so unable to complete this assignment. Then time's up. You turn in your paper and you get an F. What more can you do? And then Jesus shows up and he looks at your paper and he erases your name and writes his name. He takes your failure. That's what happened at the cross. And then what's better is he takes his paper and he erases his name and he writes your name on his paper and turns it in and you get a perfect score. That's the gospel. He takes your F, you take 
his A. It's as simple as that. And listen, if you think you're going to get into heaven by all of... Why would, why would you continue to scribble with a crayon on the calculus test and try and impress God? It's not going to go well. You have to ask Jesus to take your failure away. And you have to ask Jesus to give you his grade. Now combine that with this imagery of the law, and what that means is this. Jesus fulfilled the law for you. It's like everything in here was your homework and he did all of your homework for you and turned it in and you get a perfect score. Jesus did all of your heavenly homework for you. And that's the only way you can have a perfect grade in God's grade book. At the cross, Jesus took away your F. And then he rose again and he's offering you an A. Jesus died in your place. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus must release me from the penalty of God's law. Then jot this down. He rose again in victory. He rose again in victory. And because he died, death breaks the legal bond and voids the legal penalty. Because he rose, he lives now to intercede for you to God. Therefore, you're no longer obligated to keep the law perfectly. Hey, listen, the, the road to heaven is not try harder. The road to, if you're on the try harder plan, you'll never get there. I'm going to keep more of God's laws this year. You're not going to get there. You're not on the try harder plan. You, you have to hire the best legal defense in the universe, God's risen son. Only he can get you out of this risen mess. That's your confidence when you stand before a holy God. Right? Talk to my attorney. And if Jesus is your mediator, he's the one who's going to get you into heaven. Do you see how it's not what we do, it's what he does? Number one, I'm under the authority of God's law, legally guilty. The law revealed my guilt and made me worse. And even if I'm ignorant, I'm not innocent. Number two, Jesus must release me from the penalty of God's law. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place. He rose again in victory. Number three, I can now serve God freely. So back to verse six, I can now serve God freely. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve God in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So I can now serve God freely. The law and sin teamed up to topple me, but God's Spirit released me from condemnation. Therefore, sin can no longer rule me. The law can no longer condemn me. How can this be? How, how this happened is Jesus died on this cross and rose again. And therefore, by his atonement, by his substitution, by his resurrection, we can be saved. Now, why? Why can I serve God freely? I can serve him because his spirit is inside of me. And I meant not to serve sin anymore, but to serve God. Hey, have you discovered the joy of serving Christ? When you get saved and you start doing things for Christ, it's not, it's not duty. It's not ritual. It's not, fine, I'll serve in the nursery. Give me a cute baby to hold. Oh, there's joy in it. Our student ministry team is so amazing. I mean, Pastor Jeremy's out planting a church, and this team shows up faithfully, and they're, they're shepherding these teenagers, shepherding junior high boys, junior high girls, senior high boys, senior high girls. Some of it's exhausting. You don't quite know how the students are responding, and they're bringing it. And I've never heard them complain. I've never heard them walk in and be like, Wish I was at home watching, you know, YouTube. They love what they're doing because it's a joy. 
The first things I ever did in a church when I was saved, I got saved when I was a freshman in college. I went to a work day at my little evangelical free church in Melrose Park, and it was a work day, and I showed up to work. And it was like a city, city church, so it had a little parking lot church, and then it was like in a neighborhood surrounded by houses, right? So there was like two patches of grass out in the front. And my first thing I ever did for Jesus was put grass seed down. So I grabbed a little bag of grass and I went out to the front and it was probably like this much. And I was just like, this is amazing. I'm serving Christ, putting grass seed down. Okay, I'm done. What's my next job? And then, then I got promoted to light bulbs. So I went in the church and uh, now you might think that this is an easy task. But have you ever seen the light fixtures that look like this that have about 25 light bulbs in each of them? The old school church fixtures. Has anybody ever changed the light bulbs in those old school church fixtures? Raise your hand up if you've ever done that. I guarantee you have scars on your fingers because they, they, they have, these fixtures have these like razor sharp things and you're reaching up there and you're like, ow, I'm bleeding. And then you have to pull it down and then you have to unscrew all the old light bulbs and uh, I'm, I'm traumatized. But that's the second thing that I ever did for Christ. And then like right around the third thing, I got, I was on the VBS team, my first VBS ever. And uh, so I showed up and I'm just this college kid, right? So they put me on the snack team and uh, I didn't get to hand out snacks. I got to work the cooler. So there I am opening the cooler and the kids came and got their little Capri Suns and I got a little bored. So I picked up an ice cube and I just pelted a kid with it, right? Well, that kid thought it was an amazing idea. So he ran to the ice cubes and I started an ice cube fight at VBS. Kids were getting hit in the head with ice cubes because of me. So this woman ran over and shut the cooler, and then I got taken off of snack duty. <laughs> I got removed from the snack team because I started an ice fight during VBS, right? Then I'm back on light bulbs. But, I, but it was really awesome because I was just so filled with joy to do anything for Christ. And then I got to lead a VBS team one year. I got to teach one year, and then eventually I became a deacon at that church. And, uh, it's, and so I, it was really a joy and listen, I grew up having to go to church twice a year. Well, I got to get all dressed up. You know, I had to do it. And, and my heart was so different after I became a Christian. I loved working for Christ. And that's because God's spirit was in me. I can now serve God freely. I can serve him freely. Have you discovered that joy of working for Christ? The delight of doing something for God that changes other people? Jot this down. I can serve God freely, governed by God's spirit. This isn't me trying to become a superstar or get attention. I'm governed by God's Spirit. We don't have a lot of time to talk about the Holy Spirit, so here are the basics. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's not a force. He's not a feeling. He's not an intuition. He's a person. And when you're saved, you become a temple of the living God. And therefore, God's Holy Heavenly Spirit comes inside of you to dwell in power. Here's a picture of a model of the Old Testament temple in Jesus' day. And you've got the outer court of the Gentiles there. And then you've, you've got the, uh, the inner court there where the Jews would gather. And then that big building there holds the heavenly, holy place. And then if you were to walk in there, there would be a curtain. And behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's called the most holy place. And that is described in the Bible as the very throne room of God on earth. God's holy, powerful presence there. And when you dig into the theology of what it means to be a temple of the living God, it doesn't just use the word for the whole temple complex, it uses the word for that inner holy place, which means you are that holy of holies when God's spirit dwells in you. This is an amazing truth that cannot be fully comprehended. I am 
blown away that somehow God's full, powerful spirit can be inside of us. The universe can't hold them, and yet somehow the Spirit of God, God Almighty, can be inside of us to empower us to live the Christian life. It's God's grace that when the first person became a Christian and the Holy Spirit in power rushed into that person, it's God's grace that that person didn't go supernova and consume the whole world in glory. All right? Thank God that he didn't show what really happened spiritually in the physical realm. But it is what happened. Power enough to forge a universe flows through you. Wow. I can now serve God freely because I'm governed by His Spirit. God with us. Isn't that what your heart longs for? Jot this down. I can now serve God freely, still guided by His Word. In other words, when it says we're released from the law, it doesn't mean we're released to sin. It means we're released from sin. We're still guided by God's Word. There is a lot we can say about the relationship between God's Word and God's Spirit. But in Ephesians 6.17, it says this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, So having the Spirit in you doesn't release you from obeying God's Word. It empowers you to obey God's Word. All right? And in 2 Peter 1.21, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit authored this book, which means if you get saved and then you're like, I can live it up! It's party time! I'm, the Holy Spirit who's in you is grieved because turning against the Word is turning against what He authored. See? So, so it's not that we're saved to sin, We're saved so that we don't have to sin anymore. So I can now serve God freely, governed by God's Spirit, still guided by God's Word. Jot this down, no more guilt or shame. And this is a preview point of what's coming, but it says in Romans 8, 1-2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And let me close with a question. Is that true for you? Is it true that there is therefore no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus? Has the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death? And when did that happen? It didn't happen when you were born. It didn't happen because your parents did something for you that was religious. The Bible is very clear. Religious people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. When did Christ save you from your captivity to the law of God? Maybe you're not saved, and maybe this morning it's your chance. God is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this is for you. This is for you. It's time for you to stop scribbling nonsense all over the pages of your life. Put down your pen. Let me take your failure, and let me give you holiness. Maybe it's time for you to come to Christ and to say, I need you to take my failure away. I need you to give me what I could never earn. Give me salvation. I want to give you a chance now as we close to receive the free gift of eternal life that is only found in Christ Jesus the Lord. Let's all right now bow our hearts, close our eyes, and let's talk to God in prayer. Let's pray.